0: The theme we're going to discuss in this episode of the podcast is all about stakeholders, and this was reinforced to me after a reader sent along a story about Robert Rodriguez, who partially rose to prominence for making the film El Mariachi for $7,000 in 1992. That movie has now grossed more than $2 million, and it's incredible to think about with the advances in technology from 1992 to today that that was even possible, that he could get his hands on the necessary equipment. And Rodriguez says that the $7,000 came from prizes and working in other film festivals. Rodriguez's IMDB profile is really incredible. With double-digit citations, he's got 11 in total for producer, writer, director, editor, soundtrack, sound department, visual effects, actor, composer, cinematographer, and camera and electrical department. For context, Judd Apatow, who is an equally talented producer and film director, although maybe his films are a little more humorous than Rodriguez's, uh, has double-digit credits in only four categories. Part of the reason Rodriguez has so many double-digit credits is because he does so many jobs, and he does those jobs on the film set to keep the scope of a project small. Rodriguez has been offered larger projects, but with larger projects come more stakeholders our subject for this week. This is what he said in the article that was sent along. When they offer it to you, it's still their movie. They're going to tell you how to cast it. They're going to tell you how to make it. They're going to tell you how to end it. They spend a lot of money, and they want their money back. I'd rather nobody spent a lot of money. If it's a lower budget and a minimum payout, I can do anything I want. I never wanted to leave that behind. It was just too big of a trade-off. It sounded too much like work. There's an expression especially common within the small business community where someone can be working on their business or someone can be working in their business. The connotation, as I understand it, is that working on your business is better than working in your business, and that's really how it becomes a business that will grow and become larger over time. However, there's a more important layer that exists beyond this quip. On and in are superseded by the stakeholders of a business. Projects like films offer a tidy, closed system for examination. Films have deadlines and budgets, and the more time, or longer deadline, or the more money, the larger budget, a filmmaker needs, the more people that need to be involved. Or we can also invert this idea. The less time and less money a film needs, the more people like Rodriguez or Jason Blum, a subject of recent weeks, can work independently. In an ideal world, in a prosperous marriage, or on a sunny day, the importance of stakeholders matters much less. Everyone wants to be your financial client in a bull market. However, it's the scary situations when opportunities arise. Warren Buffett said to be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. That's fine for people who can act like Warren Buffett, who has great stakeholders. Investing this is called permanent capital, but... Buffett hasn't always been so blessed. From 1954 to 1969, Buffett ran the Buffett Partnership Limited, and it was then that he started to write letters to his stakeholders. This is what he wrote in 1961. It is most important to me that you fully understand my reasoning in this regard and agree with me not only in your cerebral region, but also down in the pit of your stomach. Warren knew that the best prices came at the worst times. His comment about the pit of your stomach encouraged his investors to have the intestinal and intellectual fortitude for the bumpy ride to earningsville. Decades and many letters later, Roger Lowenstein wrote about this lesson. One purpose of his letters was to attract and knit together a shareholder group who would behave like his partners, in other words, who would stick with him. So Buffett started writing when he became uh, the executive of Berkshire Hathaway because he wanted that same group of shareholders. He wanted that same group of stakeholders, that kind of attitude. What Buffett wanted was people who would stick with him through thick and through thin because the best opportunities were in the most dangerous times. He wanted people that would not redeem their money when he was about to pounce on an opportunity. In effect, he wanted investors with the faith of Charlie Brown. and nod people who would pull the football away like Lucy. Charlie Brown, Charlie Brown. I can't believe it. She must think I'm the most stupid person alive. Come on, Charlie Brown. I'll hold the ball and you kick it. And that's exactly what Warren Buffett didn't want. That's exactly what we don't want out of our stakeholders. Last week, we looked at the monkey see, monkey do nature of opportunities. Whenever a market mechanism is introduced for athletic skills, collectible items, or investing opportunities, prices inflate and risks rise. Mix in stakeholders with different incentives, different time preferences, and different expectations, and the best action will be harder to take. Unless that is, a business can cultivate their stakeholders. Buffett did it through letters, and we'll look at how to do it too. The first idea is to think about how money and time have an influence and have an effect on the thing that we're trying to do. No one embraces an expedition and expects to fail. I'd wager that it's mostly smart, ambitious, hardworking people who even try things like that. Yet, projects fail all the time, and stakeholders are part of the reason why. When thinking about stakeholders in this episode, consider anything that draws on time or indirectly draws on time as money. Michael, a different one I promise, wanted to be a writer. His job was as an editor and he'd submitted and sold some stories. He also lived in New York City and it doesn't hurt to have that kind of proximity to that kind of industry. During his pining for writing phase, Michael and his wife bought a crummy house in Cornwall, Connecticut, he said. The couple would go up on the weekends, and as his wife painted, Michael tinkered in the garden. I ran into problems immediately, he said on one interview years later. It was like that scene in Caddyshack. Come on, you know the one, right? <laughs> I have to laugh, <laughs> because I have often finesse myself. By foe, my enemy is an animal, <laughs> and in order to conquer him, I have to think like an animal possible to look like one so that's kind of what michael did he looked for horticultural answers in books tried and failed and looked for more answers along the way michael wrote down what he was doing from that came stories then came a book that book actually sold well enough that michael got a contract to write a second book And a book advance. Yet, despite the money which quickly ran out, there were too many stakeholders on his time. Michael and his wife had a kid and a fixer-upper in Connecticut. They lived in New York City and paid New York City prices. So Michael had a choice. He could pay back his advance and cancel his contract and keep his job in the city. Or give up the job, that job's health insurance, and the job's city and move away. He and his wife moved, and he reflected years later, the key to being a successful freelancer is having a low monthly nut. Michael Pollan made it. His books win awards, and some stories even make it to television. Michael Pollan made it because he aligned his stakeholders. His wife and his lifestyle supported this path to becoming this kind of writer. Like writing, comedy takes time, it's months, years even, on the road figuring out what makes people laugh. Jay Leno put it this way when he talked to Judd Apatow. I didn't have a lifestyle to maintain. Leno spent his days working as a mechanic for Mercedes and his nights driving hundreds of miles for a few minutes on stage. And that gave Leno the time to develop jokes. Even years later, Leno tries to test his material in awful places. This is what he told Apatow. Like, I was in New Mexico a while ago at an Indian reservation. Just a very strange setup. Nice, people. But but they laughed. So I said, okay, this stuff is going to work on the show. Leno had few stakeholders on his time. He had few stakeholders on his money. And so he was able to develop as a comedian. Poland had a wife, a kid, and two residences. It all has to be a balance. Without the right stakeholders, ventures get less time and money than they need. Without the right incentives, things crumble too. And here we have what someone wise has called the most profound problem in investing. Have you ever been in an elementary school? Third grade classroom lines provide an excellent metaphor for aligned stakeholders. If you haven't been in a school recently, this is what it looks like. And it's probably much like you remember. Some kids line up and want to get to lunch or to recess or to art immediately so they can maximize their time there. And some kids, take standing in line as an opportunity to talk to their friends. When a class is lined up straight, paying attention, and as they say in my daughter's school, eyes forward, lips zipped, they can move efficiently through the school. When they aren't, they can't. Kids get in trouble. They get less time at wherever they're going. That's kind of how businesses exist too. And that profound problem exists when the principal and the agent aren't in the same line going to the same place at the same rate each once. It was Super LP Chris Duvos who called this the most profound problem in investing. Duvos said, people with money, the principals, act differently than the agents, those who are entrusted with the money. This problem exists under the expression, no one got fired for buying IBM. And it's also hidden in the acronym CYA. Let's look at the Warren Buffett situation we already noted. Buffett wrote letters to align and filter. We'll get to that point. His stakeholders, so that he could buy out of favor stocks. Buffett wanted superficially, not fundamentally, ugly businesses. However, Warren Buffett had it easy. He's the quintessential goofy uncle or fun aunt that every family has, though none that I know are quite as wealthy. Buffett's communications were the principal source of financial information for his stakeholders. I wonder what he'd do in 2019 when Twitter, cable news, and conspicuous consumption are so dominant. CNBC didn't even start until 1989. Buffett still writes his letters, and they reinforce the Buffett brand, and that influences the stakeholders who are shareholders today. Remember, except in the limited laws of the physics world, people only look stupid relative to something else. So, one solution for individuals is to cover your ass and purchase IBM. But the second solution is to change the relative comparison. This is what it means to align stakeholders, to frame the comparison in a different way. This is what I mean when I said that Buffett has it easy. When he started writing his letters, when he started his partnership, and when he bought Berkshire Hathaway, there wasn't this deluge of information that he had to compete with. He laid things out in a clear way, and the relative set of comparisons was limited compare that to today when if you're a business and you're promising something to your customers and you're trying to get aligned stakeholders they can look at something else because something else is always available and they can see that what you're doing is not working out on that same time horizon or they can see it not succeed relative to something else and there's always going to be a relative to something else that is better than whatever you're doing the, the, the hard part is picking that out ahead of time investors don't have it quite so bad. They have an expression that makes this conveyance easier. You can't be the market and beat the market. The implication is that they have to be different. They have to look different. So if a limited partner thinks they're stupid, they have to find a different metric. It can't just be they're not doing what everyone else is. Of course not. They promised you that they wouldn't be. In the monkey see, monkey do world where edges erode, businesses must act opportunistically. It must be fast, fourths. That ability comes with good stakeholders, and there's a certain time, in a certain place, in a certain way you can find them. The best time to align stakeholders is actually before they're even stakeholders in whatever you're doing. This was something John Wooden did while he was coach of the UCLA basketball team. In a book that covers his playing time for Wooden, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wrote this. As I learned later, our first meeting was perfectly representative of his philosophy of recruiting. I wanted young men who wanted to play for UCLA, and not one that I had to talk into playing for UCLA. I always believed that the way to build a great team is to find the kind of people you want to work with and tell them the truth. Kareem explains in the book that he was a bit taken aback, that while Wooden was respectful, he wasn't effusive. Kareem at the time was the best basketball player New York City had maybe ever seen. He was one of the top recruits in the country. And while John Wooden had the best program, he didn't fawn over Kareem. He didn't do that because he wanted the buy-in from the player. Brent Bishore wrote a book and created a network because he said, we eat on proprietary deals. Brent's book, his podcast, and letters are all ways to create an inbound network for the stakeholders. He told Ted Seides in one podcast interview, We like to get in situations where people have educated themselves on us. People know who we are. There's already trust built through our writings, through what we've talked about, and they want us to buy the business. They're coming out and seeking us. Jim Mattis writes about the importance of this in his new book, Call Sign Chaos. During the Vietnam War, felons, parolees, and petty criminals were offered a chance to serve in the war instead of serving time. That seemed like a good idea to the judges who assigned the punishment, but not to Mattis and the Marines fighting in the war. Soldiers are stakeholders too, and when Mattis got back, he was assigned a recruiting position in the western United States, and he tried to find the right people. He tried to align the stakeholders rather than take anyone who was willing to sign up. All of this brings up a very important question of balancing perfect clients with available ones about employees and the unemployable. Stakeholders widen and shrink the opportunity zone of a collective. Great people will expand what's possible. Unaligned ones collapse what's possible. Success with stakeholders seems to be like success in dating. Share who you are and see if they like it. A business should always sell their strengths because it aligns stakeholders, it gets the right people in the door. John Wooden's strength was focusing on the process. Kareem wrote that Coach Wooden didn't like sports movies, because after the lesson of the movie, the team usually won anyways. Kareem wrote this. His point was that the life lesson is the success, the traveling is the reward, not reaching the destination. Wooden wanted people who were learners first, because he knew that winning followed learning. B. Shore wants to filter out people who won't jive with Adventure's Midwest vibe of hard work, humility, and honesty. Mattis wanted men who were the few and the proud. Investor and former Marine Wes Gray puts it this way, The edge is not in building a better mousetrap. The edge is in coupling educated capital that understands why your mousetrap works and pairing the two together. Assistant General Manager for the Boston Celtics, Mike Zarin, said much the same thing. The communication of the information is as important, if not more important, than the actual quantitative work you do. If people don't believe what you're doing, if they don't understand it, then what's the point of doing all of the analysis? That's getting the right stakeholders. So what Zarin, Gray, Mattis, Beshore, Wooden, Buffett, and all the others have done is communicate well. Each is and was upfront about what they're trying to do, and they find people who buy into that. How do they tend to communicate well? They find a way to do it easily. A few examples might help. One dichotomy to think about is the visual to the literal. Sports analytics really stagnated until general managers like Zarin and others figured out that players liked to see information, they liked color-coded charts, they liked heat maps, they wanted to understand things in a visual way rather than a literal one. Another helpful dichotomy is to ask if your information is to entertain or inform or do a little of both. In the modern cacophony, it's easy to separate these two sometimes. Philip Tetlock has studied decision-making and forecasting, and he noted the more accurate forecasters tend to bore people. So what are you doing to your stakeholders? Are you entertaining them or informing them? A third way to think about this is think about understanding, not necessarily agreement. Sometimes your stakeholders just need to be heard, they don't need to be convinced, and you don't need to be convinced by them. Brian Koppelman said this about being in movie-making meetings. It's important to make people feel heard when they are giving notes about the show. Make them know you are actually listening. But then it's important that we only take the notes that will make the show better. In his book, Jim Mattis writes this, I aggressively delegated tasks to the lowest possible level. Mattis said that it's important to leave the how to your subordinates. A decentralized command works great with stakeholder alignment. Like Mattis saw fighting in Vietnam and recruiting Marines after, people are everything. He quotes Napoleon who said this, "'An army's effectiveness depends on its size, training experience, and morale, and morale is worth more than any of the other factors combined.' What is morale? Morale is just the attitudes of the people you have. If you get the right people involved in an organization, if you get the right people in an expedition, then their morale is going to dictate what they do. And that's what really influences a success or a failure. So how do you interact with your stakeholders? Ultimately, it really comes down to two paths, the smaller project path and the coordinated project path. Smaller projects take less time and less money, and so there's less stakeholders involved. There's just less points of friction in the decision-making process. That requires someone like Robert Rodriguez, who can do more with less, or fellow filmmaker Steven Soderbergh, who shot the movie High Flying Bird, you can find it on Netflix, on an iPhone. And when he was asked about this, Soderbergh said that it doesn't matter what camera a filmmaker uses if they don't know where to put it. So to have smaller projects, you're either going to be pursuing and doing less, or you're going to need people who have these jack-of-all-trade skills, like some of the filmmakers we've recently looked at. The other path is coordinated projects, and all a coordinated project is, is great communication with, with aligned stakeholders. Sometimes this is done at the top of the funnel for inbound clients. Sometimes it's done after the fact to educate people on what you do. Sometimes it's homestyle letters like Warren Buffett. Sometimes it's visual arrays like athletes get in Moneyball organizations. And sometimes it's just regular content like the podcast, like the emails, like the other pieces of content that you see on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis. That's what it takes. Good stakeholders can make the difference between a success and a failure, between something that is good and something that is great. And hopefully in this episode we've talked about how we can have great stakeholders in our own lives, in our own organizations. Thanks for listening.